To Scream Scene, the horror podcast. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. And it's our first episode. Awesome! So, given that it's the first episode, we should probably explain uh, what Scream Scene is and what we're doing here. Scream Scene is a horror movie discussion podcast where Sarah and I will be watching almost every horror movie ever made chronologically <laughs> and ranking them from best to worst. Yes. Usually we'll just watch a movie every other night, and last October we thought, oh, let's just watch old classic horror movies, and so we went through some of the Universal monster movies and some of, like, the old, older horror movies, and we started thinking, like, why don't we watch this and talk about it as a podcast? Yeah, it seemed like a pretty cool podcast idea. Um, Probably the other big inspiration for this podcast is uh, some of the other big ranking podcasts out there like Every Story Ever on War Rocket Ajax or um, Hark the Holiday Music podcast. Mm-hmm. This is a sort of similar idea but we will be approaching the films chronologically because I like everything in its neat historical <laughs> context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, my background is in film production and film studies uh, so I do have like a pretty significant background knowledge in history of cinema Um, But horror has never been my specialty. Uh, I do like the genre quite a bit, but uh, I've always been a bit more of a sci-fi guy. So I've done a lot of English studies back in university, so a lot of my understanding of horror, or at least gothic horror, comes from that literary standpoint. But horror movies are also really interesting because you get to see what the society kind of fears at the time. So, like, an obvious example is with George Romero, where he's explicitly talked about it, um, with his zombie movies talking about consumerism or racism. Um, But you could even look at slasher movies, and that as an example of the social fear of unsupervised, uncontrolled, sexually driven teens. Right. (laughs) I think the thing that's always been fascinating to me with horror movies is... Um, They're not typically considered one of the prestige genres of film. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, even sci-fi or fantasy every once in a while gets to poke their heads above and get some respect, right? So, you know, Lord of the Rings gets to win an Oscar or we all get to recognize that 2001 is a, you know, mammoth achievement or whatever. Um, Horror, even the classics, tends to be a little bit looked down upon. But I find it really interesting because... Through the development of the horror genre, you kind of see the development of the film genre as horror becomes more sophisticated or changes its methods, you know, relying more on visuals or sound design than dialogue or costume, you know, the way that these different eras apply. So I think that's, it's a really interesting genre to talk about. We should talk about horror as a genre. So what kind of makes it different? For me, it's kind of interesting to think about it because, like I said earlier, My interest with gothic horror literature, uh, a lot of the definitions in that, you can tell I did an English degree, there's like the terror definition of the dread before, you know, the scary thing happens, and then horror is defined as that revulsion after 
the experience, mm-hmm. like feeling disgusted with what you're seeing or what's happening. Right, after. right, and there's that, and that is a distinction between sort of the two terms. But in terms of genre, there's really not such a thing as a terror genre. Well, I would argue that like thrillers are more for terror. Right, um, and I suppose that's the interesting thing is that you know whenever you start talking film genre, um, you start running into these places where the boundaries between genres start to blur and especially if you're going to do uh, a podcast like this where you're trying to quantify these things it's important to come up with okay we can't have these blurry boundaries we must have strict and you know visible boundaries and I think the problem is that a lot of film genres especially the big ones like horror or uh action or adventure um there's a lot of cases where movies kind of fall into oh, it's this and this, mm-hmm. you know. Um, film genres are a lot like the Supreme Court uh, ruling on pornography. Oh? Have you ever heard? You, you don't know that? the no. the U.S. Supreme The U.S. Supreme Court definition of pornography was um, established in, like, a court case in the early 60s, and the um, famous quote is that the presiding judge said uh, that when it came to defining what was obscene or not in art, he said he, he knew it when he saw it. Oh. You know, you can't really put your finger on what this is, but you know it when you see it, right? Mm -hmm. We can all kind of agree, like, oh, that's a horror movie, even if we can't maybe put our finger on why it's horror and not thriller or whatever, right? But Yeah. um, Well, in the lead-up to us doing this uh, and talking about what makes a horror film fit in that genre, you talked about something really interesting that's like survivors versus heroes. Right. You know, not every horror movie has a monster, mm-hmm. but monsters are a pretty big part of horror movies. And they don't have to be supernatural monsters like a ghost or a vampire. They can be, you know, all too human monsters like a serial killer or, um, you know, someone abusing authority or something like that. But I'd say that the difference between, you know, a horror movie and, say, you know, a more typical adventure movie or fantasy movie is, um, you know, while there might be scary moments with a monster in a fantasy movie, um, in those other genres, the goal is for the protagonist to kill the monster, right? You go out searching for the dragon and you're going to defeat it. And that makes you a hero. You know, heroes seek out monsters to destroy. Whereas in horror protagonists are often just trying to survive a monster. Mm. Um, so rather than seeking out that trouble and defeating it, the goal is more that, you know, the, the idea is more that the monster is set upon them and they have to just survive that monster. And they might defeat the monster in that process, but they're certainly not, you know, these um, avenging, questing figures. Mm-hmm. So like the difference between alien and aliens. Right, exactly. So in Alien, you know, this crew picks up this space monster and then has to survive it rampaging around their ship. And in Aliens, a group of Marines lock and load and go to the alien's home planet to shoot them all to shit, right? So it's a very different emphasis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other thing that uh, we talked about when it came to defining horror as a genre was sort of the big genres have different goals in terms of what kind of emotional reaction they're primarily trying to get from you. The primary emotional objective of horror is to elicit the response of fear from the audience. You know, you might laugh during a horror movie or you might have 
other, you know, you might feel disgust or whatever, but the primary goal of the horror film is to make the audience afraid. Mm-hmm. I think that's why I find the blurred line between, like, horror and terror really interesting. Because like I said earlier, like, terror I see with more, like, thrill movies, because, like, mm. you're on the edge of your seat, you're excited. It's that feeling of, like, maybe not so much dread, but it's like, oh, will they get out of this versus horror where it's, like, no, the things already set upon them. Um, yeah, um, the thriller is is definitely not dread. You know, the thriller is tension and yeah. suspense. And the thriller is you're on your edge of your seat wondering how they're going to get out of it. Um, horror is the dread of knowing that they're already in it mm. and being sure that there's no way they can escape. And all you can do is sit there and wait for the bad thing to happen. Yeah. For sure. Because we're doing this in chronological order, it's, it's funny because we just talked about, you know, here's how we're viewing the horror genre. You know, a horror film is this and a horror film is that. But when you're doing these things chronologically, you have to start at the beginning. And the beginning of any art form is a very loose and amorphous period when the, the rules are not set. Um, so today we're going to be looking at horror films that predate what we would consider today the concept of the feature film. So these are short films. These are one or two reelers from the 1890s through to the 1910s. Um, And we're just going to be knocking a bunch of these out of the way right off the top because they're all pretty short. Um, Have you seen many movies from this period? I don't think so. Uh, One movie that kind of comes to mind that I would have seen would have been the Phantom Carriage, I think it's called. That would have been later. Oh, that would okay. have been that was a feature film. Oh, okay. Um, uh, what about the German Golem one? That would have yeah still been later. We're 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 talking pre-feature films here, so. Um, okay. We're, so I probably haven't seen any of these then. Yeah, we're talking like Trip to the Moon. Have you seen Trip to the Moon? I've seen the stills from it. Okay, but you haven't seen it. Seen <laughs> no. It. Okay. So that's probably like one of the most famous films from this period. Same with like Great Train Robbery. Yeah. Um, films like that. So, um, Buster Keaton films of horror I've seen. <laughs> the Haunted Mansion. <laughs> um, and even that's kind of a little bit later. We're going way, way back to the early, early days. So um, to give a brief crash course in really early film history, um, when cinema technology first started gaining popularity, it was about... 1895-1896 with um, these guys, the Lumiere brothers, and they did showings of movies called Actualities. And Actualities were the first real kind of movie um, where there was no story, there was no narrative, it wasn't even a documentary in a sense, it was just a thing that happened. So like a really famous one is called Arrival of, of a Train, and it's just a shot from a train station of a train pulling into the station. Oh, I've seen that. Um, and that was considered really shocking just because the train's coming right at you. Yeah. Um, but they were movies like that. It was like a crowd milling about, you know. And it was just the novelty of seeing moving pictures. For the first couple of years, that novelty was enough to sustain the industry. There was a young man named George Méliès who saw these Lumiere pictures. And Méliès was a stage magician and illusionist. Uh, and he went, holy smokes, like, the, the film, like, this is a cool way to do illusions, basically. Hmm. So he started making films that were essentially trick films, where they were pretty much the same as a stage show, um, just with um, 
editing being used to make people appear or disappear in very crude kind of special effects. But they were significant because they were the first films to really add narrative. By the early 1900s, people were figuring out editing. They were figuring out cross-editing, you know, going from editing not just to do a trick, but to go from scene to scene or intercut to scenes. And by the 1910s, you were starting to get people like D.W. Griffith in the States figuring out close-ups and long shots and tension and suspense. And by the mid-1910s, you started getting movies of more than, say, a reel or two reels long. You started getting real feature films. So what we're going to take a look at today is, is real primitive stuff from before kind of that development of feature films, of films with a long length. So we're going to be seeing kind of movies going from the Melies period of just real simple stuff, and then right up to the edge of kind of feature film length works. So the movies we are watching tonight include Le Manoir du Diable uh, from 1896 by Georges Méliès. 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 None of us are French. <laughs> None of the two of I us are French. I took a year of French. Le Chateau Haunt, 1897 by Milias. The Haunted Curiosity Shop, 1901 by Walter Booth. Le Monstre, 1903, Milias. Le Chaudron Infernal, 1903, Milias. The Sealed Room, 1909 by D.W. Griffith. Frankenstein from 1910 by J. Seal Dolly, produced by Thomas Edison, and it's the first film version of Frankenstein, the first of many to come. Yeah, no kidding. Then Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1912 by Lucius Henderson, and another Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1913 by Herbert Brennan, and this version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is kind of significant because it's produced by Carl Lundley. It's his first horror film, and he went on to found Universal Studios, which is, of course, where we get all those Universal monster movies. Exactly, Sarah. So everything we're watching here is public domain, and you can find it easily in a million places, like the Internet Archive, uh, or in this case, we're watching all of these off of YouTube. Um, the tricky part with films this old is that they're often available in a variety of print qualities, musical scores. It can sometimes be very hard to find good versions of them, but they are all out there, free to watch uh, on YouTube and other sites. Cool, so... We'll be right back. Yeah, so we're going to watch these really old movies. Uh, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will be talking about what we thought about these and uh, ranking them. Ooh. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching nine short movies. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so before we dove into these, I asked you if you'd ever seen any movies of this sort of vintage, and you had said no. So I'm really curious what you thought of movies this old. You know, the, the typical uh, silent movies, uh, at some point I was just like, yeah, I get it. Like, you don't need to keep showing me that you're in love. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> For the really early films that we just watched, like the late 1800s ones specifically, the ones that were like under a minute or around two minutes, it felt 
kind of like a skit at a school play. Yeah, the tradition that a lot of early cinema came from was vaudeville. Mm, yeah, right? I definitely got that feel. You know, and it was only when guys like D.W. Griffith coming in later tried to class the joint up a bit with more <laughs> melodramatic kind of things that you started mm. getting plot and character and story. The The movies we watched tonight ranged from 1896 to 1913. Yeah. So that's a, a pretty big spread of years, right? That's oh, yeah. um, That's 17 years. And you could see kind of, I mean, the development, couldn't you? Oh, for sure. From just, like, fixed static camera to, oh, suddenly we have more than one shot slash scene. Hmm. Okay, so... <laughs> now so, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, so let's, let's, let's dive into these. So, okay. um, the first one we saw was Le Manoir du Diable from 1896, directed by George Méliès. Méliès. What did you think of that? I mean, it felt... When you said that early cinema really uh, comes from vaudeville a lot that definitely made a lot of sense to me for this one um I, I felt that kind of like magician tricks kind of show like the devil in the short is kind of the magician doing like all these tricks like oh suddenly I'm a bat suddenly there's like this girl suddenly she's a witch or a ghost or whatever you can kind of tell from the film footage yeah yeah so that was kind of neat um, and the other reason why it really felt like a magician slash vaudeville is there seemed to be a lot of jokes to the audience. Like, the audience was in on the joke being played on the night, or right. whatever that was. Yeah. I don't know if you want to jump in, but there was one other thing that I thought was really cool. Mm-hmm. I kind of noticed it in the other ones, but this was the one that really stood out to me. Um, so there's this idea that comes from the Sergio Leone films where it's, if it's not in frame, then it doesn't exist. And that idea came to mind when, like, the knight ran off and ha- had his hand just out of frame and pulled out a crucifix to scare the devil away. Right. Um, it's like, wouldn't he have seen that? Wouldn't it have been hanging there for him to see? But it wasn't in frame, so it wasn't there. Yeah, and then when it came to all of the the tricks with the camera being done, where, like, obviously it's a trick edit um, or, like, a jump cut or something. But it just made me think of that, like, whatever is not directly in view of the camera. So if it's hidden behind the cauldron and mm-hmm. it pops up, it's, you know, those stairs aren't actually there. It, she literally just pops out of the cauldron or right. something. Right, yeah, exactly, because we can't see the trap door or whatever. Yeah. Um, the word that came to mind that I wrote down for this one was spoopy. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Because, like, um, it's got all these spooky accoutrements Right? And this is traditionally considered, you know, the first horror film. And so it's got, like, bats and ghosts and black magic and witches and devils and goblins and skeletons. But it's not really scary. And I don't think it was ever intended to be. This isn't a case of, like, oh, yeah, back in the day, people were really scared of this kind of thing. Like, I think the effect it was meant to have on an audience was to go, wow, when, like these trick edits happened. Like, how did he make that person disappear? How did he make... How did they turn that into a bat? That's, oh, wow. It's, it's a novelty. And mm. I think the... I think the intended effect is comic. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Definitely. So, so not really a... Tr- like, not a true horror film, more of a comedy with horror dressings. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Props and such. Yeah, yeah. 
it, it's that comic feel that made me think of magicians because mm-hmm. the magician it's why you never want to actually volunteer to be the magician's helper when they're on the stage and they're like who wants to help me out with this because you're going to get the prank everyone else will be in on the joke but you're the one who actually has to experience it yeah is that is that pretty much all we have to say for that first one? Yeah, I mean it's like three minutes long. Oh, it's three minutes. The first one's three minutes long. Yeah, how much can you talk about three minutes? We're gonna find out because the second one uh, that we watched, <laughs> Le Chateau Haunt, from eighteen ninety seven, so the next year, also by Melies, is even shorter. It felt like a sequel because I think it was the same actors in the same costumes. It looked like the same set to me too. It looked like a remake <laughs> of. Like, this is Le Chateau Haunt, so the Haunted Castle. The first one was uh, basically Mansion of the Devil. Like, they're the same title almost, the same premise. It was the same kind of thing, like, people running around, things turning into other things, things appearing out of midair. It was the same kind of gags. Um, The first one, Mansion of the Devil, was three minutes long. This was one minute. The only real difference was this. The color. Right. Yeah, so this was hand-painted color, so yeah. this would have been frame by frame, someone going in and painting this in color. I wonder if, because I totally agree that it feels exactly the same, I think even like the gags and the tricks and whatever were better in the first one. This one, Le Chateau Haunt, is 45 seconds because they were hand-painting, right? They're like, ugh, we don't want to like have yeah. to hand-paint three minutes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, you only do a minute because hand-painting is like really arduous. Um, and it feels like that was the whole reason to do it, too. It was like, let's do that again in color. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same shtick. Yeah. It's it's the exact same shtick, just in color now. Speaking of the exact same shtick, so our first flick that wasn't Melies was Haunted Curiosity Shop. Um, this was 1901, and this is a different director. This is uh, Walter Booth. I really liked this one. You did? I really liked it. Okay, I'm real curious then. Is that a pun on the curiosity shop? No, but if you want it to be, it can be. <laughs> uh, I really liked how it played with the 2D space. Because, mm. like, when you're first starting, like, first, like, that skull's floating around, and then it stops, and then suddenly it's the woman, but she's only, like, from the waist up. You can tell she's, like, the backdrop's all just, like, painted, but it's painted to look like it's 3D, but you right. can tell it's 2D. And where she's standing... It looks like she's on the wall, and then, like, someone in, like, a dress, the bottom part of the dress costume walks up. And, like, it's silly, but, like... But it's effective. It's effective. And that's what I found also really interesting about this one, because, like, the first two, it's like, yeah, I know that it's trick edits. Uh, I know the trick with the magician. And this one, like, yeah, I kind of know the trick, too, but I found it really fun. Yeah, I suppose it's worth saying that, like, all of these movies are shot, like, as if plays. you were... Like, they were plays. Like, just that there's a stage, there's a backdrop. All these movies have really obvious backdrops that are, like, a foot past the camera. And they're just happening in this 2D space of, like, actors standing in front of backdrops with the camera right in front of them. And, I mean, this, the Haunted Curiosity Shop had these, like, creepy children. And anything that has creepy children is just automatically, like horror to me. <laughs> yeah, I think this is the same kind of spoopy, though. Like, yeah. it's a haunted curiosity shop, but it's, like, it's still not quite scary yet. Um, I think it was very similar to the Melia's stuff, except that Melia's stuff has a bit of fantasy to it. They were, like, knights in armor in a castle with, like, these kind of medieval-style demons, mm. and Haunted Curiosity Shop was a bit more quote-unquote modern, like 1901 <laughs> modern, in that it was, like, a store 
And, like, the joke was, like, the store owner can't control the curiosities he's selling. Right, because you had this skull that turns into this lady, and then, like, he can't, and he's trying to, like... The children you're talking about, I think they were supposed to be, like, gnomes or dwarves or something, but it's obviously just three girls in, like, <laughs> oversized clothing with beards. Like, three little girls. <laughs> they were so cute! Um, the only... And then, like, when, like, they ran into each other, and, like, the one in front yeah, twirls, t- and yeah. it looks like... The one that's running into her gets absorbed. Like, I don't know. I find yeah. that really effective. It was really cool editing. Um, very, yeah, very effective kind of tricks. The, the effects are good. There was also a really weird ending. I don't know if you quite caught it. Where, like... Oh, yeah, there was, like, a face. Yeah, yeah. It was really freaky. So, like, they he tosses all the dwarves into the pot. And they're, like, this whoosh of, like, smoke comes out, and then everything goes, like... Like, fades to black. Yeah, and then in, like, this moment where the picture's kind of blurry before it fades to black, this, like, odd face forms in the smoke, not enough that you can tell what the heck it is. That was really weird and creepy. I will give that scary points. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Five scary points to Curiosity Shop. Right. Do we want to talk about the racism? The racism. Yeah. So oh, the right, uh... so the skull turns into a lady, and the shop owner's like, "Oh, a lady! I want ladies!" And then he goes to like get her, and it turns into a blackface lady. And then he's like, "Oh, I don't want no blackface lady!" And he tosses her in the closet. Well, so I guess I interpreted that as she turns into a witch. Okay. Because she's, like, all hunched over, and she's had, like, a longer nose and chin. I just saw, like, it looked to me like she had black skin, and then, like, what pushed it, like, where it was like, okay, they're doing blackface, is, like, her lips were not black, right? Which is, like, the common blackface style. Yeah, definitely. So maybe I just misinterpreted that. Yeah, my note was, uh, just like Melies, but add racism. Yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe that's also, like, a French-British cultural difference. Maybe. I mean, the traditional imagery of witches is also, like, really anti-Semitic, right? That's true. That's true. (laughs) So we've, so, like you were talking about before the break, we've adjusted what we're afraid of to reflect modern times, so our (laughs) witches are black now. Oh my god. For, like, 1901 (laughs) times, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So the next one's uh, another Melies from 1903. So jumping ahead in time a little bit, La Monstra? Do you want to talk about this? Sure, yeah. So when we started watching this, it has like this backdrop of like the Sphinx and you see the Nile and the moon rising above and the two characters are in Egyptian costume. So it's like right when it's like, oh, Egypt, super cool and exotic. Mm -hmm. But that's really all there is to its like setting. Like other than that, like it's not like, oh, it's mummies. It's no... It's just like a skeleton. <laughs> right, right. It's a horror movie set in Egypt, but there's no mummies. Yeah. The Egypt stuff's just there for exotic, like, novelty. Yeah. Um, the thing I noticed about this one that it introduced that was new was a plot. Like, a little bit. Little bit of plot. Oh, okay. I, there's so little plot that I didn't even notice that. Well, because if you think of, like, the first three, they're really just a bunch of gags that happen. Mm. Right? Like, yeah. the first one's just... The first two are just things happen to dude in a castle. And then, like, the third one's just things happen to dude in a shop. Yeah. Um, This one is a little bit more plot in that, you know, we have clearly, like, a pharaoh and his court sorcerer. And the sorcerer's gonna turn this 
skeleton into something else, right? And he performs these spells and makes the skeleton dance and turns the skeleton into, like, a monster with, like, a creepy Halloween mask and, like, then turns the monster into uh, a sexy babe. And then when the pharaoh goes to get the sexy babe, it turns back into a skeleton and the sorcerer runs away, right? Yeah. So it still gags, but there's, like, a little bit of a plot through line now because we've got characters and motivation. and Definitely. Yeah, that's something I totally missed. What this one got me thinking about, and I think it's because La Monster, we watched after the Haunted Curiosity Shop, which I did really like, is, you know, I found La Monster very spoopy, kind of, like, spoofy as well. Mm -hmm. um, and it got me thinking about, like, once you know the magician's trick, is it really thrilling or spooky anymore? Sure, yeah. Um, because, like, the gags in it were, again, still with the trick editing, um, a couple times, you know, you see the the monster and it's, like, kind of ghostly garb mm -hmm. uh, start to, like, hover really high or go really low and get sunk into the ground. And at one point, its head starts waving around, but you can, like, see the stick and the person in the costume, like, losing control of the stick before bringing <laughs> it down. And it, it was just, like, I was like, okay, like, whatevs. Right. You know? Whereas, like, Curiosity Shop... Like, I know how they did the trick, but, like, for some reason, I didn't care that I knew the answer. Sure. I think, um, I had it just noted on La Monster that, like, the only thing that was, like, legit scary, the, like, weird mask that they used for it, like, because it starts as a skeleton, and then he puts the veils on it and becomes this weird, like, monster wearing, like, a wedding gown or whatever, and then, like, <laughs> it turns into the babe, right? And just, like, something about... The weird Halloween mask they used for the monster while it's like, like you were saying, like becoming really tall or really short or whatever, like flying around was just a little freaky to me solely because it was from the turn of the century and turn <laughs> of the century stuff's always just got like this, like little bit of like, ugh. yeah, just this like edge of like disturbing because like, <laughs> like, I don't know, go see, like just Google search, like Mickey Mouse mascot costumes from like the 1920s. You know, and they're horrifying. <laughs> uh, the one we watched after was Le Chaudron Infernal. So mm -hmm. again, Melies, uh, it's the same year, 1903. Ben, what did you think? Oh, um, so this is the same stuff, right? We're in a medieval castle. It's a painted backdrop. We're doing people disappearing and appearing. Again, there's like a tiny bit of a story where we've got these like prisoners these like well there's like these ogre devil guys who are like tossing people into this cauldron and they like go on fire um the the cool thing with this is again this was hand painted mm -hmm. so we had this hand painted frame by frame colored uh <clears throat> film that really gave it a lot of pop the color was used as a special effect right whereas in the previous one the haunted castle it was just there just mm -hmm. be like oh we have color but this one like when the goblin, the green goblin, like, tosses people in and then the fire goes up. Like, I think that fire was painted on. Mm -hmm. And the logs underneath the cauldron, like, flickered. Right. In a way that was clear that it wasn't just, you know, bad footage or something. Yeah, and they and couldn't have been flickering on set because the cauldron was just a cardboard standee. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then, like, when at one point, like, that huge puff of smoke would come out of the cauldron and, like, that was all colored, too, but, like... I don't know, it felt like they were using color as a special effect rather than just as, like... A gimmick. A gimmick, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, the thing I noticed about this one that I thought was really cool was he tosses everyone in the cauldron, they all burn up and die. 
And then they all came out as ghosts, right? Mm -hmm. And they were kind of floating above everybody and all wavy and sheet-like. And they were, in addition to being kind of see-through and flying, they were blurry as well, which I thought was actually really effective. And the note I have was that, you know, Melia's costumes and makeup and sets are all obviously from stagecraft, right? They're the kind of things you'd see in a stage play. Mm -hmm. Um, But the trick editing... And the special effects, like the ghosts, are cinematic. Um, They're things that you wouldn't be able to do in a play. And I think that those are the most effective parts of his films, is Mm -hmm. the stuff that's purely Mm film-based. His his other stuff is like, yeah, that's some hokey stuff. But, like, (laughs) the ghosts are really impressive. Like, the, the effects, the trick editing. Like, you know, you were saying you know the magician's trick, and it's like, yes, but they still look really good. Like, the trick edits, the jump cuts, the dissolves look better in these than in films made afterwards, you know? Mm-hmm. Then we went to The Sealed Room by D.W. Griffith from 1909. So jumping ahead by six years. Mm. Uh, yeah, and this one is l- very loosely adapted from the basic premise of Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Amontillado. What's neat with this one is, uh, especially from watching all of these previous ones that have just static camera, just like almost just looking at a stage, this one has two sets, Mm -hmm. and we switch between the two shots of those sets. Yes. Which was neat. This has a story. Mm -hmm. Like it has an actual plot with actual characters. This one's ten minutes long. Everyone else was like two minutes or shorter. Yeah, my biggest note is that Typical silent film with overacting, and yep, I get it. (laughs) Yeah, well, that was sort of D.W. Griffith's thing, was like, he's really known for melodrama. Mm. And you can really see that in this movie, especially like an early, early one like this. You know, this is very early in his career. So you get like these broad gestures where it's like, yep, he loves her, or yep, he's angry, or yep, they're dying. Like, (laughs) you know... People die in this movie the way that, like, children act out dying, you know? (laughs) Um, The other thing about this one is it was kind of like a bit of a... We abandoned the spoopy ghosts. Yeah, it's not devils and demons. We're not doing Halloween anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was a a historical costume drama with a king and his mistress and troubadours and so on. (laughs) The only thing is that, like, it only pushes itself into horror when you get to the ending where they are getting sealed up brick by brick in this room, uh, the troubadour and the king's lover, uh, because she's cheated on him, so this is his revenge or whatever, and then they suffocate and die. I see where you're coming from. I think I would still classify this as a horror movie because you have, like, the shots between, like, oh, yeah, they're still, like, (laughs) in love in this room and they aren't noticing anything, and then cut to the shot outside where the king's just like, yes, build this wall, and the servants are, like, struggling to bring the things up and it's going higher and higher, and then you cut back to the, the musician and the lover and you see, like, the king kind of looking through the curtain, like, higher and higher. And so it's kind of like a feeling of, an attempted feeling of suspense. Like, are they going to notice in time? How have they not noticed this? How (laughs) would they not hear the grunts of the servants trying to build this wall? Because of that, it it feels still like a horror movie, um, even without, like, 
this fantastical setting from the others. Sure. Well, I think that this one actually was the first one we watched that really had an attempt at trying to make an audience feel horror. Mm. Because all the previous ones, the intent, I think, was to make the audience go, wow, that's neat. Um, (laughs) And this one, especially once the wall is done, you know, the film stays on these two people in the room. And I joked earlier about their, like death scenes being exaggerated but the fact is that this is a movie that shows you two people suffocating in a room to death right and then like the last shots on the king just being so proud of himself Mm -hmm. so it has a feeling of like holy crap this guy's really evil yeah well and just the fact that we stay with these people as they suffocate to death that sort of means that the audience is a part of it yeah you know so that you you get that feel of what it would be like to suffocate to death in a room and you're maybe voyeur to that. You're maybe an accomplice to the king, you know, and watching it. And that, that gives it more of a, uh, you know, despite the fact that the movie starts as kind of a, a love triangle melodrama thing, it it's the ending that gives it a real horror feel. And I think it has, it's the first movie that we saw that I think was trying to elicit a reaction of horror from an audience. I mean, I don't know much about the other films from this time period, but before the king decides to seal them up into the room, he goes from, like, oh, I'm going to give them a good finger-waking, or, no, I'm going to take my sword out and, like, kill the dude, or what, and then finally he settles on, no, I'm going to make them suffer and suffocate. It was scary Mm -hmm. seeing this guy go through, like, how to kill these people. Mm -hmm. And, like, to what extent should I make them suffer and have punishment? Uh, And so that part was scary as well. Yeah, and I think that's the, you know, ultimately, you know, the movie has its horror element because of what it takes from Poe. Right? And then all the changes that it makes, all the ways that it is the same as Cask of Amontillado make it scary. All the ways that it is different make it something else. Yeah. Right? So it's sort of got that Poe ending uh, with this kind of, like, romantic historical costume drama dressing on it, you know? Mm -hmm. Whereas I think the previous movies had a horror dressing to a vaudeville act. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Mm -hmm. The next one was Frankenstein from 1910. So this is directed by J. Searle Dolly and produced by Thomas Edison. Oi. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This movie. We're going to have a lot to talk about with this one. So you took Frankenstein in school, in in university. Yeah, I have experience with that novel. (laughs) And this movie, I didn't write down how long it is, but I think it's like 10 minutes. Yeah, it's it's like 10 to 12 minutes, somewhere in that range, yeah. And it just drags you along at each, like, major part of the movie. It's like, suddenly he's going to school. No, suddenly he's uh, creating the monster. Yeah, just hop, skips, and jumps along. Um, the, the, so you're the, just, like, holding on for dear life. The, the note I had was, surprisingly accurate to Shelley in the broad strokes, but of course at this length there is nothing but broad strokes. Yeah. You can't do anything more specific uh here i did like that there was like a title card at the very start that said it was a liberal adaptation (laughs) uh like okay i know what i'm in for then you know (laughs) more more hollywood movies should have that now you know like when you go in to see the latest hollywood version of pride and prejudice just like a big card that comes up that says loosely adapted we read the cole's notes of this (laughs) uh cole's notes sparks notes cliff notes 
Cliff Notes is what I wanted to say. <laughs> this movie, I <laughs> really liked the special effects. Yeah. When he's creating the monster, writing down notes and doing research and whatever, as there's like this skeleton just hanging out in his chair, you know, whatever. And like you do like, when you're an alchemist. <laughs> when you're an undergrad, really. <laughs> and so then he's taking all of these like chemicals or whatever into this big cauldron in the back room, dumping them in, the smoke coming out, and then he just closes the door and like locks it. And as if, like, okay, just let it simmer for ten minutes and check up on it later. Right. And as he peeks through the peephole, that's when you start to see the monster be created. And it's like, we're, um, Ben, you, you'll know, like, the technical term for it. But basically, they took whatever the costume was for the monster and burned it and filmed it and then played that in reverse to show it being created. Yeah, and it was in sort of layers so that you had, you know, there was the monster's wig and and costume and so on but then clearly behind that they had a skeleton and they had things to look like muscle and stuff so that um you're right they burnt it and then they reversed the footage they're projecting it in reverse Mm -hmm. and when they do that you see like the skeleton form first and then it looks like muscles forming around the skeleton and then other things forming around that right they give it a really cool look because they burnt it in layers it looked like and I guess um, it, the way that it was in layers explains how they were having the arms move. Because I wasn't really sure how they were doing that when it would be burning. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really cool. Yeah, the uh, the note I had was that the monster's creation felt more like alchemy than like science. Mm-hmm. Um, in that he's taking a bunch of ingredients, tossing them in a pot, and kind of boiling, like, <laughs> like cooking this monster to life. Which actually reminds me more of the novel. Because, like, in the novel, Shelley talks about Paracelsus and um, Hohenheim and, and, like, alchemists. And, you know, when you read the novel, you don't get, like, buzzing Tesla coils like you do <laughs> in, like, the movie sort of conception of Frankenstein, you know? Yeah. At the end, in the credits, it mentioned that the makeup was done by the same actor who played the creature. That's really common in old Hollywood films. The... Or, old films, really, just in general, was the expectation that an actor did his or her own makeup. And I thought it was really well done. You could kind of see where the bald cap started on his forehead, but it was kind of like a raised head with, like, this wild hair and almost like a football player's (laughs) shoulder gear, um, but then, like, really skinny legs. I don't know. It looked really impressive for the time period. The effect it sort of gave in my mind was that of, like, a primitive man. Oh, yeah, and had, like, long spindly fingers. Yeah, like, just the big shaggy hair and the, like, kind of torn tunic clothing and stuff. It made me think of, like, a Missing Link or Neanderthal kind of look to it almost, you know? Mm -hmm. And then it just kind of goes a little weird. Right. It's like, oh, I've made this monster. I'm horrified. Let's go back to my home. To be fair, he does that in the novel. He gets freaked out by the monster and goes like, well, I'll just go home and get married. Whatever. Let's just pretend that didn't happen. But, like, the title cards were like, oh, the monster's following him, but you never really got a sense of that. Right. The monster Uh, just shows up. Yeah. So the main part where, like, the monster shows up and causes some havoc is this weirdly framed shot 
where like you see kind of a living room place on the left and then on the right it's really just like this very large mirror so you can see people coming in from the door. Two shots for the price of one. Exactly. And full disclosure, I love it when people use mirrors like that. <laughs> like, it's just like it's so cool and like other kinds of reflection. Yeah, it's um, cover. Yeah, and it seems really hard to achieve. You know, for the first time we see this kind of framing, yeah, okay, so we can see people coming into the door. That's really it. It really only causes tension because we see the monster come in and Elizabeth's just walked off screen. Assumed Elizabeth, since I don't think she's actually named in the the thing. But yeah, the monster comes in and people in the room can't see him, but we can see him because we can see the mirror. Mm -hmm. And then the second time we see that framing is when the movie realizes, oh, I only have a minute left in the real oh, bizarro ending. Yeah, like Fight Club ending. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the monster is like, realizes that love overcomes all, runs into this room with the mirror set up, and looks at himself in the mirror, is like, oh, I'm so ugly. How can I, anyone ever love me? And then suddenly he's just in the mirror? Like, he doesn't Right, have... he, he disappears from reality, and he's only in the mirror. And then Frankenstein comes in, sees the creature in the mirror, and is just kind of, like, stunned, and he's like, what is going on? I don't know, either it cuts the, or whatever, but The suddenly... mirror creature becomes Frankenstein. But yeah, and so it's like, it, it, it was Frankenstein all along. <laughs> that's, the, that's the implication. I have no idea what the movie was trying to do with this ending. I was so confused, like... This is the weirdest ending that I've ever seen to an adaptation of Frankenstein. And I've seen a lot of adaptations <laughs> of Frankenstein. So the... So I just I, feel like Frankenstein turned to Elizabeth and it's like, you've met me at a very strange time in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked up... Um, so I had to look this up because this was so weird to me. So <laughs> I looked up this movie and I guess there's like a statement from Thomas Edison explaining that they wanted to adapt the story but not have any of the scary stuff in it. So the idea was they wanted to address the book's philosophical value as like a Christian allegory or some <laughs> nonsense um, without having any of anything that could be uh, repulsive. So they said that they, quote, eliminated any repulsive aspects of this weird tale. I don't know if that was just something he said to appease, like, censors. Like, oh yeah, don't worry, there won't be anything scary. It's, it's going to be straight Christian across the board. <laughs> but, like, he also said that in eliminating the repulsive, they wanted to focus on the psychological aspects of the story. So I wonder if that's why we have this weirdo ending where Frankenstein was Frankenstein this whole time. You know? <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds like that's what they were going for even though that doesn't quite make sense. <laughs> I mean, it leads more into the last two movies, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Right, Hyde. that's right. <laughs> I know. Just the, do that movie. The, Just do that adaptation. Don't do Frankenstein if you don't want the scary. I, I love that, like, yeah, the movie ended and I was like, wait, what movie is this? <laughs> so the only other thing I have as a note here is that the only reason we're given for the monster being bad is that there was evil in Frankenstein's mind, which again feels like a Jekyll and Hyde thing. It's like the idea that Frankenstein represents like the repressed evil within Frankenstein. It's just, <laughs> instead of him turning into the monster, the monster um, becomes a separate being from him. Or I wonder if it's like bringing in, um, no, don't worry guys, it's going to be Christian kind of element right. of Edison's statement or whatever. Um, 
you know, Frankenstein dared to be God, so his evil pride came out right. as this monster. Well, that's that's the Shelley thing, too, right? A yeah, little. but it's more explicitly that psychological thing, I guess. Is what yeah, I'm I guess. I mean, I guess Shelley's novel is more about being fatherhood. A sh- yeah, it's being a shitty dad. Yeah. I mean, like, this movie, I still find it, like, creepy and macabre. Yes. But, like, a lot of that came from the special effects and the way the guy played the creature. Like, popping out of that curtain. Right. Creeping back in. I was just like, ugh. Yeah, yeah. That shot uh, where Frankenstein's <clears throat> passed out on the bed and the monster comes in through the curtain and kind of hovers over him and then goes away reminds me of, um, there's this old painting called The Nightmare. Mm. Have you ever seen it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's the one where it's the girl kind of stretched out on the bed and there's like the little demon lying on top of her and there's like a freaking literal nightmare, like a horse, like speaking in through the, the curtain. Um, so that composition really reminded me of that. The only thing I can think that like was really, um, you know, if we're thinking about what makes this movie horror, you know, what's scary here, the thing that I noticed that's new in this movie is the imperilment of women. Okay. So, I mean, that's like a pretty big horror trope, right? Is the yeah. the screaming girl and the monster going after the girl. And this was the first time we really saw that was, you know, that the monster's scary because he's going to come after your woman. Yeah, I mean, we kind of saw that with the Infernal Cauldron where that demon was grabbing his prisoners and throwing them into the cauldron. Yeah, but it was such a mild thing. It was just like, yeah, he grabbed a girl, he threw her into the cauldron, she's dead. You know, like, this was the the terror of, like, oh, he's going to get her. Oh, and, Your like, women are in danger. pleading with the creature yeah. as Elizabeth is off. Yeah, yeah, and, like, she, he's going to threaten your lady. You know, that sense of, we've put a woman in danger. She's, you know, we've got a damsel in distress, you know? Mm-hmm. I think this was a successful adaptation of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. all things kind of considered. But not the best Frankenstein I've seen. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it does really lead very well into discussing Jekyll and Hyde with that, the good versus evil in a man's soul, you know? Yeah. So the first Jekyll and Hyde we watched was from 1912, directed by Henderson. Yeah. And this stars James Cruz as Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, the film made a big deal of that. Well, yeah, I don't know who James Cruz is, but I know that, like, you know, ever since they started doing stage play adaptations of Jekyll and Hyde in, like, the late 1890s... You know, it's a movie that's like an actor showcase, right? You get to play Jekyll and you get to play Hyde. And traditionally, the actor playing them did his own makeup and was responsible for the transformation and those sorts of aspects. So I think that, like, in a lot of ways, the performance of that central actor and what makeup they do for Hyde and how they pull off the transformation is kind of the criteria by which you judge a Jekyll and Hyde movie. (laughs) If that's the case, then this one, I think, did all right. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't bad. <laughs> it wasn't good, but it wasn't bad. As Jekyll, he's sort of tall, blonde, and handsome. Mm-hmm. And then as Hyde, he's sort of uh, hunched over. Uh, he's got this black hair and, like, real bulging kind of eyes and fangs. Yeah. Um, the transformation sequence was, again, with trick editing. It was just a jump cut, right? Yeah. So it wasn't that impressive, especially considering, like, all that we had already just previously seen. Mm. And it was a little boring. I mean, that, maybe I'm just saying that because if, you, if you've if you seen Jekyll and Hyde once, you've seen it a thousand times, right? <laughs> I don't know. I just found it really boring. I was like, cool, yeah, now he's going to go kill that 
girl's dad and like whatever and like then they'll catch him and like whatever this one he committed suicide which right. was interesting yeah so he he kills himself because he can't transform back so he he threatens this girl who's the minister's daughter which is like uh-huh which i i should say you know this whole idea of jekyll having a fiance with a dad who's a pillar of the community or whatever he threatens the girl and kills the dad and stuff that's from the stage play Cool. None of that's in the book. But uh, the incident where he tramples that kid in the street, that's in the novel. Where he okay. just, like, runs over a kid and tramples them. Um, but yeah, so here he kills the dad, and then he can't transform back to Jekyll, so he kills himself. And I thought that was really interesting because it begs the question of who's in control, right? Why would Hyde kill himself? Mm-hmm. Right? So does that mean that there's some... You know, who's who's really in control of Hyde? Is it a totally different entity, or is that is it really just Jekyll acting out his worst impulses, right? Yeah, that's... I hadn't considered something like that. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, just from a filmmaking perspective, um, I don't know if you noticed, but that shot where he's got the poison, and he's going to take the poison, that was our first close-up. You're totally right. Uh, I was so distracted by trying to read what was on the bottle. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it just said poison. Yeah, I assumed after he took it and didn't move after. <laughs> You're totally right. That's really interesting. Yeah, so that's 1912 to get to a close-up. Um, the other thing in, from just a filmmaking perspective I noticed on this one was was we got off of um, proscenium stage sets. Mm-hmm. We got outside, we had outdoor shooting with real sunlight and in real, like, looked like parks and outsides of people's houses and stuff, which gave it a little bit of more of, like, a realism feel than, like, the kind of stage-bound feel we'd had up to this point. Definitely. So, okay, so there was that version of Jekyll and Hyde. Um, I actually really liked that version. I thought it was, you know, it's ten minutes long, it's a one-reeler, but it was a very stripped-down Jekyll and Hyde, but it covered your basic points, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's Jekyll, he becomes Hyde, Hyde does bad shit, Jekyll feels bad, things go out of his control, he dies at the end, right? Like, yeah. it covered your basic points. So then immediately after we watched a version of Jekyll and Hyde that was twice as long, two real film from the next year, directed by Herbert Brennan and produced by Carl Lemley. What did you think of the second longer Jekyll and Hyde? Ugh. It was, if the first one was boring, this one was doubly boring. This one was garbage. Because I, I felt like, cool, they have the longer runtime, but they didn't know what to do with it. Exactly, because I have the same just, note. Yeah, they were just like, cool, he transforms, then they chase him, then he changes back and he's fine, then he transforms, then they chase him, then like, he changes back and he's fine. Oh and my it's like, God. I fucking get it. It was so repetitive. It was just endless scenes of him. He's Jekyll, so he takes the potion. So now he's Hyde. So he goes out. He does something bad. They're like, oh, that Hyde. They chase him. Uh, he, <laughs> oh, that Hyde. He goes back home. He transforms back to Jekyll. He feels bad. He turns back into Hyde again. He goes out. Like And like, they had the thing of trampling the kid and like, bribing the dad, which was hilarious. The title card said, Hyde agrees to pay for the child's injuries. And like, he just pays off the dad. Right. And getting his friend to bring him the medicine because mm -hmm. he can't get to the house himself. And that's something. an incident from the book as well. Yeah, and so I was like, oh, cool. And then it was like, part two. And I'm like, yeah, it oh just my kept god. going. Um... <laughs> It was so boring, but the thing that really wrecked this one, honestly, uh, King Baggett was real bad. 
Oh yeah. Real bad. So so the guy, by the way, the guy playing Jekyll and Hyde in this movie's name was King Baggett, just to be clear <laughs> on who I'm talking about. Um, what a name. But yeah, he was like if if your Jekyll and Hyde adaptation is judged by its acting and its makeup and its transformations, this was real bad. Yeah. So we have tall, silver fox kind of looking guy. Like right. He had, like, it, yeah. a weird blonde thing on the top he, of his he, head. Well, he has, like, dark hair and a gray streak. He's got the, like, Sweeney Todd look going on. <laughs> you know, does whatever. And then his hide. Oh, I'm going to, like, just walk around with my butt <laughs> on the floor with, like, <laughs> keep my hands oh. as if they're T-Rex arms. <laughs> And just, like, <laughs> flail around like that. He looked like a child kind of doing, like, a bad caricature of, like, a mentally disabled person. Yeah, it made you know me I mean? feel like... It, it made me think of ableism and made me really uncomfortable. The note that I had was, um, crouching around on his haunches like Gollum for no reason. <laughs> not threatening. <laughs> Uh, and in fact, comical. He's supposed to be scary, right? Everyone's reacting like, oh, how horrifying. But he's just this, like, little dude walking around on 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 his knees, kind of swinging at people with, like, his little crouched-in T-Rex hands. And, like, the actual face makeup, I couldn't quite tell what he was going for. It was, like, a, it was, like darker skin and darker hair and kind of, like, buck teeth, kind of like Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's kind of look. <laughs> and it just looked ridiculous. It looked comical. It never looked threatening or scary. No. What I did like about this one compared to the previous one, and I think it's because it had the longer runtime, run you got to know the other characters besides mm. just Jekyll slash Hyde. Right. You meet his lawyer friends. You meet the girl and her dad, sort mm -hmm. of. You get to see him being a charitable doctor at the beginning. Right. And which... that's, that's the other thing that's taken from the play, um, oh. is this idea that uh, Jekyll is this charity worker. Um, and so that and the girl and her dad, that whole plot, and this idea that he spends so much time with his charity patients that he's not spending enough time with the fiancé, right? That's right from the play adaptation. In um, Stevenson's novel, it's more that Jekyll's just his repressed dark side. Mm. Um, it was about Victorian society, right? Yeah. The repression of that society. In the play and the kind of the movies, which kind of, as a tradition, the movies kind of take more after the play, there was more this idea of turning Jekyll into like a saint so that like Hyde was more evil just by comparison to how good Jekyll is. But Jekyll's just like, Jekyll's just like a generally respectable guy in the novel. He's not this like saintly figure helping charity cases, but you definitely get that in, in the play and in the novel, or the in the play, but in the films based on the play as well. Because... I mean, I think it's because we just watched one after the other, <laughs> but in the second one, also probably because we see more of Hyde being, you know, a little, like, troublemaker, we see this great capacity for kindness, um, and I feel like it's saying that, like, whoever has this kind of great capacity for kindness has equally great capacity for evil? Right, except that, like, I agree with you, and I think that's supposed to be the point, the problem is, is that, like, Hyde in this second version never came across as evil. Yeah. Um, the first version, the James Cruz Hyde, I could buy as, like, evil. He kind of had this, like, uh, you know, he murdered that kid in the street and, like, this kind of stuff. And he murders that minister. This Hyde, like, murders people by just kind of jumping at them. 
and then they fall over. <laughs> and, like, the rest of the time, he's just, like, like, there's a scene where he's supposed to be, like, causing a ruckus in a bar or something. And all that happens is he, like, walks down the steps and kind of, like, goes, at everybody. And they all go, oh, no. And then he, like, walks away. Yeah. Like, he just kind of, like, is a jerk. That's kind of the extent of his evil. Yeah. That's, that's it. He's just a weirdo. He's just a weird little man. And everyone reacted to Hyde as, like, oh, this incredibly hideous thing. Like, everyone's just like, oh, my God, he's touching me. Blah. But he didn't look... The makeup did not match people's reactions. No, the makeup in the first one was much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the makeup is the responsibility of the actor, you know, and the performance is the responsibility of the actor, then King Baggett failed. Like, he was real bad. And he's bad as Jekyll, too. Like, there's the scene where it's like, Jekyll feels remorse. And it's like a solid minute of him just reaching out his hands to God, like, I'm sorry. And, like, wandering around his house doing the same gesture over and over again. To be fair... <laughs> For both Frankenstein and the two Jekyll and Hydes, I kept thinking of Colin Clive and Frederick March because both those two actors are just fantastic in their respective movies. Oh yeah, like they've you know, I watching especially the second Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde because it was longer. You know, I just had that feeling of like I just want to watch the Frederick March version. Can we yeah. just be watching the Frederick March version? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we'll get to it eventually, but you know. <laughs> um, the the transformations were bad. Oh like, yeah, the nineteen it was just like the nineteen well the 1912 transformations were a jump cut, but at least they were matched. The nineteen thirteen version, it's a cross dissolve, but they weren't matched at all. It was like Jekyll was on one side of the room and Hyde was on the other. Like there was no attempt at getting this right. <laughs> okay, we we've ragged on Jekyll and Hyde, I think. But is would you consider it a horror movie? Yeah. So I have a a note here that the the horror of the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde was like the horror in Frankenstein. It was the horror of the threatened girl. It was that once this Hyde comes out, he's going to go and he's going to attack this girl. And what's he going to do to her? Right. All right. The 1913 Jekyll and Hyde, because Hyde as a villain was such a failure. Um, I saw a kind of different horror to it, which was, um, the horror being directed for the first time at the self. The 1913 Jekyll and Hyde, I did get that sense of loss of self-control. That the horror is that, you know, you will take this drink and you'll become some asshole that nobody likes and do things that you have no control over. And, you know, that leads you very clearly to the central metaphor of Jekyll and Hyde, which is alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do think that, you know, if you think about um, the United States, uh, because this was a U.S. film, this 1913 Hyde, Prohibition gets passed in 1920. Right, so oh, the teetotaler, yeah. the teetotaler movement is happening. The alcoholism metaphor is in the book. You know, Robert Louis Stevenson's dad was a drunk. I think that's really where that movie's coming from. And like, there was that weird Catholic imagery in it, where like, just for no reason, there's that scene of Jekyll like outside a church while like a bunch of like choir boys pass him. Oh. And it was like, why is this in here? Yeah. And it's like, I think that in this movie, Hyde dies for no reason. He's not shot. He doesn't kill himself. You know, he just, he can't get any antidote to turn back to Jekyll and then for no reason just kills over dead, right? And they do that thing that most versions do where once he dies, he turns back to Jekyll, right? He always dies at, as Hyde and turns back to Jekyll. But why does he die? If it's an alcoholism metaphor, it makes sense because drinking too much alcohol will kill you. Yeah. Okay. So I do think it's a horror film because it's the horror of <clears throat> the loss of self-control. 
Do you think maybe that's why Hyde is so, for lack of a better word, comical? In no, version? because it, he's not drunk. It's not the comic call of, you know, the comic drunk. It's just, it looks like he's trying to do what James Cruz does in the 1913 version, which is hunch over, curl his fingers, and go, Arr! and have like, you know, the, these fangs or whatever. But he doesn't have the makeup skill or the acting skill. So he's just down on his knees making T-Rex hands with his buck teeth sticking out. Well, I mean, what I'm trying to ask is that, you know, he's still like ostracized. He's not even like welcomed in as like mm -hmm. with these other people drinking at that bar. Mm -hmm. um, even when he tries to get this kid to pass a note on or something, mm -hmm. um, like the kid is terrified to be around him or something like that's that's more my point of like mm. everyone else finds him scary even if we don't. Right. So it's like everyone finds this maybe not scary but like stay away from me. We find it. We just kind of roll our eyes at it. Mm. I don't know. I think it is just a failure on the part of the film. If I hadn't seen the 1912 version, I might have given it a bit of like a oh it's an old movie pass. But it's like no, I saw a version from a year earlier that did this same thing much better. So I think it is just a failure on King Baggett's part to, I have to say the whole name every time. Like, I know his first name's just King. You can't just call him Baggett. Like <laughs> right, but like, I could just call him King. Like, it's just his name. But no, I have to say it like it's, no. Um, but it's just a failure on King Baggett's part to do a good performance and good makeup. I think, I think the movie has some interesting ideas, but I think you're totally right in that it's redundant, that it doesn't know what to do with its running time, and that it's Jekyll and Hyde are bad. <laughs> yeah. So, ranking. Right, so let's rank these. Uh, if we Do we want to just kind of go through in chronological order then? Sure. So that means that just by default, uh, Le Manoir du Diable enters the list at number one. Uh, <laughs> the best horror movie ever made, uh, because it's the only one. Um, okay, so then let's talk, you know, The Devil's Mansion versus The Haunted Castle, which we basically said were, one was a remake of the other in color. So does yeah. the color make the second one better? And no. That's the only question. No. No. So the original's better? Yes. Why? It does more gags. It tries to do a bit more creative things, like stuff outside of the uh, camera's framing. And it just does more versus <laughs> um, the haunted castle being like the same thing. But, oh, we have red costumes this time. Right. Okay, so... Uh, then Le Chateau Haunt enters the list at number two. Cool. Uh, Haunted Curiosity Shop. So you really liked this one. Yeah, I would probably put it above The Devil's Manor. Okay. Um, I, th for me, like, I, I totally agree with you on a lot of the effectiveness of the effects, and I really liked the weird spooky face that I don't know what it was at the end. Um, I do feel like I'm not sure how to rank blackface. Um, so yeah. kind of like Melies, like, yeah, you know, but Melies maybe should get some points for inventing these trick edits that this guy used in Curiosity Shop and should maybe get some points for no racism? Yeah. Five year difference between the two. I mean, the reason why I found Curiosity Shop more, more surprising in its gimmicks is because of the way it played with that 2D space. It did that ghostly image mm -hmm. before the other dude. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, I, I found it a lot more effective and entertaining than 
The Devil's Manor. Okay. Um, I mean, The Devil's Manor, maybe because it's the first one, too, some of the editing tricks were still a little rough. Like, you could see in the second one, The Haunted Castle, that, like, he got a little bit more smoother in his edit tricks. Gotcha. But I I would put Curiosity Shop above The Devil's Manor. Um, yeah, it has that black face, but it's also from, like, 1901. <laughs> So we're we're giving it a bit of a pass. Yeah. Um, all right. So um, I think I, I I think I can accept putting Haunted Curiosity Shop above Devil's Manor purely because there was a moment in Haunted Curiosity Shop that freaked me out. Yeah. So it was a more effective horror movie, just for the sake of having one moment in it that made me go, ah. Yeah, and I guess the other reason why I feel like giving it a little bit of a pass with the, the use of blackface is because it was for, like, half a second. Sure. So, like, for two seconds. Wasn't a major element of the film. And I really do feel like it was being used as, like, oh, it's a witch or something like that. Okay. Um, rather than a caricature of black African people. Sure. I guess I can also take solace in the fact that it's probably not going to stay at the number one slot very long. Oh, no. <laughs> so, it's the first episode. So, uh... Uh, the monster, Meliès, 1903, the Egyptian one. Hmm. So I really liked this one. Um, I thought that the backdrop and the costumes and everything added, you know, did what they were supposed to do, which was make it feel a little more novel than, like, the standard European stuff. Yeah. Um, and I really liked the spoopy monster <laughs> effects with its weirdo mask and its now I'm tall, now I'm short, and I liked the goofy ending of, like, the pharaoh gets a bag of bones for his wife. Yeah. And the sorcerer runs off. Um, so I, I, I liked this one definitely more than the two other Melies ones. Definitely more than Devil's Manor or Haunted Castle. Um, I'm not sure about this versus Haunted Curiosity Shop. What do you think? I, I'm pretty much the same. Um, I would put this, um, if we could do, like, ties, I would probably put this with the Devil's Manor. But I feel like if we do ties, we're going to end up with a list full of ties. Yeah, so we, because we can't, I mean, I feel like, what, that was 1903, Yeah. and the Devil's Manor was 1896. Yeah. So he's had, like, seven years yeah. to get better at his craft. I think that means it should go above the Devil's Manor. Okay. Um, so then same year, but back to more European imagery, um... Infernal Cauldron, I like it much more than The Monster. Um, I even liked it more than Haunted Curiosity Shop because I loved the ghosts at the end. Um, What about you? I agree that it should go above the Curiosity Shop, mainly because of its use use of color as a special effect, um, because that would have been so novel at the time. Right, for sure, absolutely. And it's like around two minutes long and so they would have had to do all of that hand painting mm-hmm. and like they did a lot of detail with it yeah it looked really good it, it, it didn't look you know um haunted castle looked really obviously hand painted yeah. um infernal cauldron looks fantastic it looks like just it's it's so pristine the painting work it's really really well done yeah, so um, I would put that above Haunted Curiosity Shop. All right, we're just knocking them out. So the new number one is uh, Infernal Cauldron. So Sealed Room, D.W. Griffith, what do we think? Oh, that's tough because... Because it's totally different from all the other ones. These, The first five are all basically just trick editing gag films. Yeah, 
And the last four, they're adaptations. So how much do we weigh in with, like, their source material? Right. Like, Griffith's basically just taking the method of murder from Poe, and the rest of it's this kind of more generic historical romance thing. Yeah. You're the gothic horror expert. Um, what do you... What's your literary opinion of Sealed Room? It doesn't get gothic horror-y until... I mean, maybe it was just the soundtrack that went with the version we watched, but, like, as soon as the title card came up, that the king becomes suspicious. Right. And suddenly it's just, like, these violins doing, like, these high notes. <laughs> and you're like, oh my god, what's happening? Um, that's really the only time. But gothic horror really is just... It's more about being in a creepy castle. Right. Or, like, there's nothing about this being in a creepy castle. Like, it's just a castle, and the king is just like, yeah, I sealed up this room for no reason except for this one entrance. So we (sighs) mentioned that this was the first movie that actually really had a goal of making the audience horrified. And, you know, I made a big point at the start of this that saying that I define horror based on the intent Um, That if the filmmaker's intent is to make you afraid, you're watching a horror film. If the filmmaker's intent is to make you laugh, you're not watching a horror film. So even if these other films by Melies and Booth are more technically ambitious or innovative with their trick editing and their hand painting, um, I don't know if I can really justify calling them better horror films simply because they're not scary and sealed room has a little bit of scary in it. Yeah, and I really liked your point about watching these people suffocate how the audience feels like an accomplice to the king, um, especially because the implication is that the king has the two servants building the wall murdered Mm. as well, just, like, shot off screen. Yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. This one should go at the top, then. Okay, so Sealed Room enters the list at number one. Yeah. So things are just getting better as we go. Uh, (laughs) So that brings us to Frankenstein. Is Frankenstein going to enter the list at number one? What do you think? Well, I don't have the connection to Frankenstein that you do. (laughs) Uh, You have a, a pretty close emotional connection with that text. I think that... It's a really good first adaptation. I think that it has a lot of interesting connections to the Shelley version that get lost after the Universal version kind of becomes more iconic. Um, I think the effects were great. I think the ending was bonkers. (laughs) I don't think it was as scary as Sealed Room, largely because, like, I don't find, oh, my girl's in peril uh, to be frightening. That's true. That was the only, like here's something to be afraid of versus, like, the body horror of the monster wasn't quite there in the same way that the horror of seeing the king Mm -hmm. murder these four people, really, with the servants. I think that the science fiction aspects of Shelley's text, in terms of if science fiction is defined as a genre that uses, that talks about the way that technology and human behavior and ethics kind of overlap, right? That gray area. Mm -hmm. That's what Frankenstein addresses when it talks about man playing God by creating other men and things like that. I think that aspect of the text was in that film. I don't know if the horror aspects were in it as strongly because I never really felt that horror of like, oh, it's coming to get my woman, you know? Um, So I don't know. What, What do you think? Yeah, I think 
So I think it should go below sealed room. Okay. What's the other one that's there right now? The Infernal Cauldron? Infernal Cauldron sitting at number two. Um, and I think Frankenstein should go above it because, frankly, the yeah. effects in Frankenstein are much better than, like, the two things to compare in those two movies are effects and the effects of Frankenstein are better. Yeah, I would agree. Okay. So now we have our two different Jekyll and Hydes. So Oof. we these were both pretty bad, but we kind of need to figure out which we liked more or less. Um, I think we're both on the same page that the 1912 by Henderson was better yes. than the 1913 one by Brennan. Yeah, I would agree. I think uh, brevity was the, <laughs> the 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 better thing here, the better part of horror. And this, the, the effects. And the effects and the makeup and the performance. Like I said, a Jekyll and Hyde adaptation lives or dies on its makeup and its transformation. And the 1912 version did better. I think it's not as good as Frankenstein. I think you're right. Yeah. What's, sorry, what's below Frankenstein? This uh, Infernal Cauldron's below Frankenstein. And then uh, Haunted Curiosity Shop's below that. I, should, should 1912 Jekyll and Hyde go above or below the Infernal Cauldron? Well, what they both have to offer is, you know, these jump cut effects, right? I don't think 1912 Jekyll and Hyde succeeds in being scary. Um, but it does have more character than Infernal Cauldron. There's no people in Infernal Cauldron. There's just sort of it, it, people as props, you know? Yeah. The victims, the ogres, right? So, I mean, you've got more complex story in Jekyll and Hyde. You've got character. Um, you've got better performances from the actors. Let's, let's try to rank the 1913 one first. <laughs> the 1913 <laughs> one is real bad. Yeah. Uh, it's real bad. But I... I don't know. I thought I was maybe on an interesting kick there about that alcoholism thing. I think you were too. Oh. I think that makes it better than Infernal Cauldron, even though it was real bad. You think theme makes it above that? Oh, I, well, because we're ranking these as horror films, right? If we right. were just ranking these as, as films, right? As pure cinema. As, was this entertaining? Was it well <laughs> shot? You know, kind of thing. Then Infernal Cauldron would be much better, but we're ranking horror films. And I think the fact that the 1913 Jekyll and Hyde gave me something real to be afraid of. You know, it was using horror as allegory. It was saying, you know, yeah, this was a story about a potion, but it could easily be a story about alcohol abuse. Whereas Infernal Cauldron is just telling me, like, hey man, don't spend time in a castle with ogres. <laughs> They'll murder you. And it's like, I wasn't planning on it, man. Thanks for the heads up. <laughs> All right. So that would put it above Infernal Cauldron, but below Frankenstein? Right. And I don't... So then we know the 1912 version of Jekyll and Hyde goes above the 1913. Yeah. Does it go above Frankenstein? No. No. Okay. I'll, I'll agree with that. So that means that at the end of our first episode, our uh, list is nine movies long. So we don't even have a top ten yet. <laughs> we watched that many movies, and we don't have enough. Uh, we don't have a top ten. Uh, but the list is currently sitting at at number one, the sealed room. Number two, Frankenstein. Number three, Jekyll and Hyde, nineteen twelve. Number four, Jekyll and Hyde, nineteen thirteen. Number five, Infernal Cauldron. Number six, Haunted Curiosity Shop. Number seven, The Monster. Number eight, uh, The Devil's Manor. And number nine, The Haunted Castle. Cool. I like that. That's really good. Okay, so we've made it through the short film period of cinema. Uh, and when we come back for episode two, we'll be doing a feature film. 
Yeah, it's called Der Student von Prague, and it's generally considered the first feature-length horror film ever made. This is actually really exciting, because this film was considered lost since 1913, until the Munich Film Museum released their restoration on DVD just last year. Just in time for our podcast! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If you would like to check out the list, you can check out screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, and you can find us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Uh, If you would like to submit any suggestions for upcoming episodes, we will be handling movies in chronological order. Um, But, you know, if you want to make sure we don't miss a favorite, uh, certainly send us a email. Screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. You can also submit it through our Ask on Tumblr. Um, That's the Ask on Tumblr or the email is also good places if you strongly disagree with one of our rankings and would (laughs) like to ask for an appeal. Um, I don't think we're going to get many of those just with these movies, but... uh, Who knows? Yeah, someone might be a real big fan of 1913 Jekyll and Hyde and be really upset. But yeah. just destroyed it. Yeah, it was a terrible movie. It was real bad. For all of the, you know, 90-something King Baggett fangirls out there, uh, I'm sorry, he's real bad. He Um, was handsome. Yeah, (laughs) sure. In a 1910... kind of way, yeah. I feel like... The 1912 Jekyll and Hyde guy was cuter, though. Yes. Although there was some weird, like, blonde Aryan equals good, uh, (laughs) darker features equals bad stuff going on with that one. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for listening to our first episode. I hope that you stick around and come back for our second, uh, and we will see you guys then. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.